0: Welcome to the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. This podcast is about sharing the success stories and lessons learned from experts and entrepreneurs from Queen's and Eastern Ontario. Okay, welcome everyone to this episode of the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. We are thrilled to have Mr. Sushi Paramel join us for this interview. If you haven't heard about Maxold, they're probably one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing company that's headquartered in Kingston, Ontario. As CEO of Maxold since its inception, Sushi and his team have built a unique marketplace in the re-commerce space employing over 600 people in the U.S. and Canada. Maxold has processes that are built to scale globally, to serve those downsizing, settling an estate, or clearing a business reliably, efficiently, and safely. Sushi holds an MBA from Queens, so go Queens, and a degree in electrical and computing engineering from McMaster, and is also an avid pilot with a commercial and instrument rating. Sushi, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great. Thank you for having me uh, here, Jim. Happy to be here and happy to spread the, the entrepreneurial bug.
0: I'd like you to start, if you could, just give us your snapshot of Maxold as it stands today.
1: Uh, in, in a nutshell, you'd hire Maxold to sell everything from the cleaning supplies under the sink to the Ferrari in the driveway. And, and you'd use us if you're downsizing, settling in a state... And hey, it's spring. So if you want to do a spring clear out, and we do this uh, gym in over 2,000 communities, you know, from Boston, Massachusetts to San Diego, California, uh, with a team of you know 600 people and growing. Initially, we established as an industry leader in the auction business, and now with our recent series, we financing. We are transforming into this re-commerce powerhouse, if you will. And, and creating a big, massive impact to the landfill avoidance cause. You know, because our purpose, it's right, nicely articulated in there, is that we extend the useful life of things for new generations to love.
0: Certainly in an era where we're worried about climates and having things go into landfill and things like that, this also seems to be like a great contribution to not having things end up in landfills. Uh,
1: totally. And, and, you know, if we make it uh, frictionless, and that's our goal, how do we make e commerce fun, approachable, easy, frictionless? And and that's what's going to create massive, pervasive use for people to engage in things like thrifting and antiquing. And and all of these things are amazing, but it, people just don't have the access to it, so we bring access to it.
0: Your service is a one-stop shop, so if somebody was moving out of their larger home into an apartment, they could call Maxold they'd come in and I guess inventory the contents they wanted to sell or get rid of. You put those things online, there's a bidding process, things get sold. And then as I understand it, the process is, there's a pickup session that's managed by somebody on your team that somebody comes along. And is that an accurate description of the way the workflow works? It, it is,
1: uh, there's, there are so many steps in the process and so many moving parts, and that's, that's what makes it all work. Customers have a massive, a massive friction you know when they are trying to list things on Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, LetGo, it may be incredible for millennials and and Gen Y, but but most of us when we have faced to sell a, a, an entire volume of items, you know the question is like how do you price it? How do you how do you take good pictures? How do you describe things well? How do you market it beyond that platform? So that's where we come in. So you you'd hire us if you have a whole volume of things to sell. Even if it's spring cleaning, you know we can look after it. You know with our minimum fees and and also with our do-it-yourself process. So we take a lot of that frustration out by if you had to hire us to do it for you, gym, we would send in a team to photograph, catalog, measure, and describe, and everything from that cleaning supplies under the sink to the Ferrari in the driveway. Everything gets cataloged, and then we open it up for an auction, which lasts one week typically. And during that process, we, we go out to town to market the items. It's like, a, it's like a, you know, like an like a election campaign. We get as much eyeballs on your items as possible by advertising on Facebook, Instagram, Craigslist, Kijiji. And, and also we have a deep local following for our auctions. So people are notified through our own email distribution lists. People bid on the items. Things get competitive in the last minute. And when the auction closes, you would know when to come and pick up the item. It's typically over three to six hours, either on a wee- evening or on a weekend. So you'd come in, take the item away. So it's, it's hyper-local, and it keeps the goods and the money in the local economy.
0: That's an amazing business model. So would you describe it as somewhere between an auction, a garage sale, eBay, and an online marketplace like Facebook marketplace? How, how would you describe where you fit?
1: Yeah, you know, we, we used to describe it as a as a live auction replacement. But obviously, you know, many people haven't been to a live auction, so they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I think what the way you described it, it's a if eBay and, and Craigslist had a baby, it would be max sold.
0: I think we've been talking about it, but the first question I always like to go through is what is the pain point and the problem being solved and you've already used words like customers are frustrated and we're always trying to remind students and entrepreneurs that you know in any business you want to be a painkiller not a vitamin talk to us about the pain point or the problem you identified early on as the genesis i guess for maxold
1: like i'm a big fan of uh, that analogy as well is it a painkiller or a vitamin people are overwhelmed by the amount of things they got to clear out that's when they wonder well there's got to be a better way and and they go online and search for an estate sale company that's typically how people find us they search for an estate sale company they search for a liquidator we could turn on a platform tomorrow that sell you know one item at a time right so it's easy but but we are not we are not solving a big bleeding neck problem and there are so many other platforms that sell one item uh, between let go, and, let go and offer up, they had raised a billion dollars to be able to compete with Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace. Very pervasive. We're not. We are not competing with them either. So we wanted. We wanted to create that differentiation that we are your one-stop shop, fully managed, done-for-you service to be able to sell everything. So that that was a friction because people get overwhelmed and they just call 1-800. Got junk. I just had a call just a couple of hours ago with the chief operating officer of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And he said, half the calls that come to him are, could you buy this stuff? Could you take this away and and give me money? And he's like, no, you call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. <laughs> right? Like we take it to the landfill and it's going to cost you money. I would see us as, as, as an alternative, you know, to get things to the landfill and, and to put money in people's pocket. So it's a, it's a nice win-win-win solution for the, consumer, for the planet, and for max sold as well.
0: Probably a lot of secret sauce you have need to develop in terms of creating that two-sided marketplace, having the technologies to be able to go in and, I guess, cost-efficiently inventory, place these things on the market. I'm assuming a lot of re- research on figuring out where the best place-to-place ads are to attract the people that, to me, instead of going antiquing garage sale to garage sale, this would be a much faster way to look for the those cherished items that maybe collectors and antiquers are looking for. Is that a fair way to describe the way the machinery inside Maxwell's really made this model uh, to a place where you're, you're really looking to scale it with uh, the recent financing? By the way, I should mention congratulations on more than $16 million of financing recently. That's, that's a large number for a company based in Kingston.
1: It is, and, and we are gunning for between 50 to $100 million in the next six to, 6 to 12 months, if I may be as bold to say that because we we know as you mentioned before we have the um, the that secret sauce and uh, the scale up capabilities is what we are building product market fit is there the market you know demand is clearly there so what we are developing right now is that is a really nice clean go to market that we could go in and scale up every single region every single community in north america
0: let me turn the the clocks back so We've talked about the problem that you're solving. Go back to the founding story of Maxwell. How did the company come into being? Who were the founders? It was actually
1: a Queens connection, uh, Jim, through my through the networks in Queens, met with somebody named by the name of Brad Ross, and he was officially part of Queens as one of the relics, retired executives living in Kingston. You know, it abbreviates to relics. I'm sure that was by design, <laughs> right? And. The takeaway there is you know you never know no you don't you don't go out the door saying that today's the day I'm going to meet my wife it just happens you know you you obviously need that intent that you want to meet a partner and so similarly you know you go out with the intent that you want to create a business or an opportunity or something and the universe has some way of of making that happen so similarly you know I went out and said you know what like my entrepreneurial ambitions is to create a a business that has a global scale, you know, so big that I'm able to fly a Gulfstream jet. And as you noted before, I'm a pilot. And what could be better than getting a Gulfstream jet and shooting, going places, you know, instead of uh, getting into my Cessna as I get in now, you know, you you can get get to places much faster and, and build more business. People meet more people that way. I I was in a process of uh, launching another business uh, that does point-to-point air travel, when in other words, I was trying to start an airline and not ambitious at all.
0: (laughs) No, just a small business to get into. Uh,
1: Completely. So during that process, I ended up working extremely closely with, with Brad Ross, who reviewed my business plan, so gave me input, won a couple of business plan competitions locally here in Kingston, and ended up putting that business on hold with the financial crisis that hit. You know, especially to start an airline, you know, it costs $100 million to start a, start a service. So put that on hold, went into consulting, but Brad Ross, uh, knowing me uh, well, knew that I wanted to get back into entrepreneurship. So he made an introduction with a local business person who used to do, who, who, is, who was doing live auctions at that time, and knew that this concept has legs he wanted to get it get it tested so i raised my hand met with them they had met with they had they had met with several other people and i said you know what like i i'm i'm happy to join to be part of this team and i will work for no salary for the first 6 months till we figure out whether they say there's a fit here or not and the and the money saved through my consulting you know enabled me to pay for that for that six-month break in not uh, not having to um, earn money. So, you know, sometimes you have to take some risks, and, and this is a risk that I took, and that gave me the, open the door to this partnership, to this conversation, to get what sold is now today.
0: It's a fascinating story, and I guess for budding entrepreneurs listening to this, networking is so crucial, but interesting that using some networks and being persistent, I guess, some of the keys for being entrepreneurs, you were connected with people that had identified a problem that you identified with to start this company.
1: No, absolutely. I knew nothing about you know, Royal Daltons or Hummels or you know this problem even existed, but you, you really need to find partners that have either the execution, the ability to execute, and scale or the ability or, or somebody with that deep domain experience. So being young, the listeners don't have that domain experience. There are partners, people out there that have that deep domain experience. They need somebody to take it by its reins and get it launched. The nice thing about not being married to an idea, just like how Starbucks founder, you know, he, it wasn't his idea, but he didn't, that didn't uh, deter him from creating a multi-billion dollar global enterprise.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice, Sushi, because we sometimes can see entrepreneurs really embrace an idea and maybe not let it go at a time when it isn't enough of a painkiller, it's more of a vitamin or whatever the reason may be. So being flexible and being pivoted till you're sure you've found something that has a compelling need. So let's move on and talk about that, So, you connected with the folks from the auction group and founded the company what was the pathway to an mvp how did you start trying to test this out
1: and i looked at it as a as a series of mvps initially we needed a phone number a website an email address and and everything obviously you know being the being a one man show came to me and uh, i actually transferred uh, the airline startups phone number over to over to Maxol, at that time ubid local and the story there was we couldn't incorporate the name, trademark the name UBID Local in the US because of a trademark with, with this other company called UBID. So we came up with this other name, founder.com, made this all happen. But also, you know, the point of the MVP is just not being afraid to use crazy glue and duct tape to make it work. Because I see so many entrepreneurs uh, spending their hard-earned money on things that isn't going to bring them their first customer or or to create a product where people can put up their hand and say, yes, I need it. And it's going to take several iterations. So for us, it did take tons of iterations. And and even to to this day, we are figuring out the most efficient scalable path to that global world domination. And, and, it's, and it's all a series of MVPs that, that you have to, that's, a, that's how we have to approach it.
0: And if you can do everything else manually with Excel or whatever, whatever you need to do to help you solve their problem, that's important. Because we'll see, sometimes entrepreneurs make the mistake, at least in our opinion, of you know, sort of coding out an entire software platform and then launch it. Then sort of wonder why they're not getting traction versus starting with the you know, the most vital component of the customer journey, solving that, and then iterating because, I don't know, like in any engineering, right? You're, you've graduated with an engineering degree. Almost any device really needs many cycles of iteration to get to a final product that meets the end user's needs.
1: Yeah, and, and especially being a marketplace and a platform, every market we went into, you know, we couldn't, we had to solve the chicken and egg problem over and over again, so we couldn't say, oh, let's get the buyers first and then find a seller. We had to figure out a way to get them both simultaneously. Otherwise, we'd be spending a fortune to, to get, the, get the buyers, to acquire the buyers, um, or we'd be spending a fortune to acquire the sellers. So that's what makes marketplaces so hard, because you had to build them both in parallel and zigzag between the two and it has to be repeated over and over again in every new market we enter so for the first um, well even you know it it is a lot of hustle it was a lot of grit i'm looking back to see how how on earth did we create all these markets and it was just one step at a time with a lot of uh, focus and and keeping in mind what's important and what what's not like what what problems should we solve today and what problems should we just defer to another to another year or two or
0: three. Yes, in some ways, two-sided marketplaces can be the most challenging businesses to start because as you've said, you've got to balance the people on the demand side. So to buy the items from these auctions, but you also need the people to host your their auction items on your platform. So that's gotta be an interesting balance. As you say, you, you work on it a little bit and recreate it each time you move into a new market segment. One of the things we always talk about with entrepreneurs is, trying to find product market fit. It means different things to different people. Could you describe for us in your mind what you think it is and when you started to realize you had it at Maxhold?
1: The product market fit, you would instantly know that you have it when people say, take my money. <laughs> Do you see those cartoons, the, the drawing that says, take my money. You know, when um, we could, for the life of us, like, you know, could not generate, could not get a single sale in the US. So it it had been a couple of years of us doing everything we possibly could. Then we met with this or we we picked a niche and we started attacking this niche. And that's when we knew we had that instant product market fit. Because this group of individuals that um, sell things for the older population they just instantly said, we need your service because they were they were straddled with the headache, with the burden of having to sell everything. And they knew their, their time was far more valuable than listing things one by one on Craigslist or, or, or on LetGo or any of these marketplaces. So they said, w- when can you start? Like, when can you come and do this for us? So that's when instantly we knew, you know, we can't go too broad. We have to niche, and niche down until you find that audience and that instantly want your service.
0: Now, so she, you're giving us a textbook uh, of walking through the lean startup methodology for for Maxold. Would you say that if an entrepreneur has to ask if they have product market fit, they probably don't have it? Exactly.
1: Yeah. It's going to you know if, if you have it, your product is going to fly off the shelf, and if you don't have it, if it's too hard. Because there isn't enough money in the world to to create awareness, awareness, right? That's just, it's just so cost prohibitive, especially in the consumer space, to be able to go out and market your product and just marketing alone isn't going to create that product market fit, right? It has to be, it has to be a bleeding neck. Otherwise... We're not Coke or Pepsi, to be able to sell brown sugar and convince people they need it. But it it, it just, you, you have to find that niche and you have to be very specific on who your co-market is and, and the problem you're solving for them with just one feature, not not a not a whole laundry list of features. I
0: often reference uh, Paul Graham from Y Combinator, and probably, you've probably heard of Y Combinator, where he says, at the earliest stages, startups really need to be doing things that at their initial outset, don't seem like they'll scale, which you've talked about where you've niched down, found where you've found that gold vein, I guess, of a customer that really wants to move forward. Would you say that's a, a fair statement early on at a startup?
1: Oh, completely. I was going door-to-door, knocking, putting putting door hangers on, driving to to see our clients, things that does not, wouldn't scale at all. but But it had to be done because I had to get belly to belly with every customer. I had to understand their concerns. I had to really assess what about this product they value, they don't value. And it's an ongoing thing. Like, you know, I was on the road for the last three weeks and meeting with partners, meeting with customers and, and really trying to understand what are the bottlenecks or what are the, where is our next inflection point going to come from?
0: So let's move from, you found your niche to now you're raising funding to really scale. Describe some of the challenges and opportunities that you've had in moving Maxwell to the scale-up stage, right? So that probably means putting in many more processes, hiring many more staff, all those kind of things, right? So how do you how have you you been able to manage that growth, and how do you plan to do it in the future? Give us a snapshot of what that looks like.
1: Oh, you know, it, it's it's radically different. You at the beginning you do everything. Uh, you need to be a generalist. You need to be able to take and do every everything that you possibly can because there isn't an there isn't an accountant there isn't an hr person there isn't a, a marketer there's no salespeople so but as as time goes on you know you're hiring people that are smarter than you that can that are experts in their domain and it really becomes about team building and really getting out of their way but holding them accountable Aligning them on what the what the vision is, and it it's a it's a the, my job description changes every single year as I keep handing more and more of my responsibilities, and it doesn't mean the workload gets lighter. It changes in in very different ways. So you know, right now the description is to create a culture and being able to influence the teams. Working three, four, five, six levels down, so you know that's what I think about. Well, how do I influence this person in in San Francisco who's cataloging today? You know, how do we influence that through our culture, our shared values? Uh, how do we create that departmental alignment so that everybody's working towards unfolding our strategy? So it's um, it's a very different job description from, and it's going to continue to change.
0: So when you think of the 600 600- people that were mentioned in the introduction. Give us an overview of how what the distribution of those folks are at Maxhold.
1: Yeah, 100 of them are support people, if you will. Um, it's HR, it's finance, it's, a, it's our call center reps, it's our sales, marketing, tech, and, and 500 of them are, are boots on the ground that are going to photograph, catalog the items. And out of the 100, about 50 of them are our frontline call center type employees you know that provide the buyer support that provide the seller support and and 50 are the finance the hr the tech the marketing
0: and with those 50 you just mentioned at the, the end there are those largely in kingston or are they spread across north america
1: yeah largely in kingston uh, mostly in ontario we have uh, we have we have a dozen or more in in the gta we have a few in 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 ottawa we are uh, doing a bit of hiring in the U.S. as well. We've gotten our first few employees in the U.S. full time.
0: I'd like to, I guess we're getting towards the end of our time here, Sushi. Talk about the innovation ecosystem in Kingston. So it's absolutely wonderful. You're headquartered in Kingston and we hope you stay here forever. What is What can the innovation ecosystem be doing to promote more companies like Maxwell to start and stay in Kingston And if there's anything the Innovation Ecosystem Support Group can do to help Maxold now, it sounds like you're on an absolute rocket ship, so probably don't need much outside help. But I'd love to know your thoughts on those two things.
1: Oh, totally. I totally need help. (laughs) There's one thing I'm good at. It's probably asking for help. It's, you know, and and that changes, Jim, with every, every stage of the business. You know, in my early days at Maxold or even being at Queen's, I really needed that encouragement. I needed somebody who could say, you know what, just do it just dive in, just do it. What's the worst that can happen? You know, I would have scratched my entrepreneurial itch. I would have figured out whether this is this is it or this is not it. And, you know, the listeners, this is probably going to be the best time that in their life because they're not good. They probably don't have a lot of commitments. They don't have, you know, they don't have a mortgage. They don't have family. They don't have kids. They don't have you know, lots of uh, they, have, they don't have that lifestyle that makes it harder and harder to start a business with ev- every passing year. So this is the time to do it. So if you're listening and, and thinking about something, just do it. You know, give it six months, give it a year. It'll be the best learning opportunity that they've ever had. And being able to put all the amazing things that they have learned at Queen's to, to use. And, and being able to leverage the network that they had developed at Queens. So that's at that stage. And then fast forward a few more years, you know, to where Max sold us now. Uh, what we really need help with is talent. You know, being able to get the, the team, everyone we have, well, I don't know, we, we could we probably have about 50 jobs that are advertised right now from, uh, from a COO, um, all the way down to you know the call center uh, call center account executives sales so we need we need an army of people and that is the biggest challenge that we are having right now is you know being able to if you know because we are on the process of scaling to north of 200 million within the next 12 to 24 months in in terms of revenue you know and, and sales how do we how do we find the talent right to be able to help us get there it's you know we we have had jobs advertised and it's been sitting for weeks and I'm like well if it's sitting for weeks, you know maybe we need to think of our go-to-market strategy or scale-up strategy, right? Maybe we need to go to South America or or to Europe or or somewhere where we can access them or Utah, <laughs> right? To access to access that employment employment base. So that's that's where we are right now is, is saying okay how do we how do we tap into this into this funnel of uh, people who can contribute?
0: But we'll make sure we put a link to your careers page in the notes for this podcast, so that if we got Queens or Saint Lawrence students or RMC that are staying around in town looking for a a career, make sure you check out Maxwell to see if there might be something that's a fit with their background.
1: Yeah, we do have a lot lots of Queens and Saint Lawrence students uh, that are working for us right now.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. Excellent. Well, Sushi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I guess my parting comment will be, I'm kind of glad that the city of Kingston extended the runway to, I think, is it 6,000 feet, the longest runway? They did, yes. Yeah. That we'll be able to hear your jet flying overhead in the not-too-distant future. Sushi, thanks so much. Really appreciate it.
1: Great. Thank you, Jim.
0: And with that, we'll conclude this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, like, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about research, innovation, and entrepreneurship, please see the show notes for a full list of programs and services available here at Queen's University.